Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It was just like, I have to get the kids out of here. They think he's coming back. I'm not going to be a sitting duck. You know, we've got to go. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I am sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, who are sitting very close to each other because they're in Austin, Texas, filming again. Sharing a singular headset because Billy doesn't bring his equipment when he says he will. Yeah. So if if the audio on their two part sounds a little fucked up, then, you know, not my fault. Right, Billy? So this is part two of our three-part series on Michelle and Stephen Andrews, a 28-year-old couple who was murdered in their home in Gateway, Florida on December 27th of 2005. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, this episode will make absolutely no sense. And then if you're listening to this episode, just remember, next week is going to be part three. So if you like to binge, you got to throw them all together. So just forewarning you. So don't complain. We are doing this because we've learned from our Facebook group that People want to know if it's a multi-parter so they can just save them up. Um, So we're telling you now, everyone, it's three-parters. I know you were expecting two. It's three. Sorry. Sorry. But yes. The story is just – It's just that good. We couldn't squish it into two parts. So – Which is crazy because I haven't heard of this story ever before. That's how good it is. Neither have I. No. So yeah. I think that we're just going on to the day, Billy. All right. So today is – Wednesday, January 13th. But I will say that it seems like our days always wind up on days that I that are one away. Because Tuesday, January 12th was National Kiss a Ginger Day. Stop. I know. Wow. Wow. Jare, it's your time to shine. It was your time to shine yesterday. Yes. Mm, The ship, the two, like two ships in the night. Passing in the the night. night. Yes. But today is National Rubber Ducky Day. Mm. Oh, that makes me sad. Because I like a nightly bath. I have several rubber duckies, but our hotel doesn't have a bath. Yes, our our hotel literally does not have a bath. I'm more. Why do you have a rubber ducky? Because I'm a bath person, and my mom gets me them because she got me one with little devil horns. Oh, that's cute. Do you actually put them in your bath? 
I mean, for novelty, but not really. No, it sits on the ledge like a little lurker. I would really like to know the history behind the rubber ducky because it poses no, it has no function. But maybe it did one day. Probably Back just in the day. Children's playthings. Hmm. Billy, do you know? I feel like this is some knowledge that you might know. But it you- seems like something I should know, but I don't know. All right. But it's also National Sticker Day. And I will say that stickers, when I was a kid, probably like eight or nine years old, were a really big deal. People would collect stickers and put them in like photo albums, puffy stickers, scratch and sniff stickers. Mm. That was a thing for kids in the 80s. I collected stickers. I collected stickers too when I was younger. I feel like, and I feel like kids these days collect stickers. They have their stickers for their hydro flask, which I actually have a sticker on my hydro flask right now. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you have a liquid death one. Liquid death. The water company that I am obsessed with had sent me a bunch of merchandise and some canned waters that I love so much, but I do, I'm a stickered hydro flask, what they call them, Visco, Visco kids or Visco girls. Yeah, I I liked uh, I collected pogs, beanie oh, babies, stickers. Yeah. I used to call yes. them stickums. Thought oh it was funny, cute. Yeah, I collected a lot of stickers. I remember collecting a lot of Smurf stickers, Smurf scratch and sniff stickers, uh, stickers, and a lot of uh, yeah, there would be. Um, you were we were so insane insane for the stickers that I remember in my book I had like a triple A sticker in there. <laughs> like my mother had gotten a triple A sticker and I was like, I'm putting it in there. <laughs> Any sticker was cool. That's for your windshield, my friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's uh, your registration yeah. sticker. That's uh, your Valvoline to let you know like, when you're supposed to get an oil something, check. I'm all good. <laughs> I mean, so it, that's because there was nothing else to be excited about back in the day, you know? But now we just or have, now should we bring stickers back in the think, in the pandemic? I, I know. Stickers I was like, back right now. now we just have sadness in social media. So maybe we That's bring right. stickers back. Can, can we do any um, first degree stickers? Do we have first degree stick? Can we do that in the merch store? We can. They're just very expensive to make, and you can't sell them for much. So we'd probably lose money ma- making them. But we can if we just want them out there, out and about. All right. Let us know if you want stickers. Yeah, we'll pay you to buy one. I guess. <laughs> Good idea, Billy. <laughs> Billy's obviously not the business mind behind the first degree. I kind of yes. said that to be like, mm, we no, we can't make stickers. But Jack's like, wink, wink, wink. No, wink, we can't. No, and I'm like, stickers, yeah. <laughs> so let us know. We'll pay for shipping. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? That's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. On last week's episode, we walked you through the discovery of a horrific crime scene that unfolded in the gated community of Gateway, Florida, on the morning of December 27th of 2005. A police officer named Tracy, who's friends with our first degree, Lisa, was dispatched to a home in the same community where she herself lived. And Tracy personally knew the couple who resided in this home, a 28-year-old couple named Michelle and Stephen Andrews, who lived there with their two-year-old son named Lucas. A 911 call from the home prompted police response. But here's the thing about this 911 call. The operator on the other end could only hear breathing and faint sounds from the caller. The officer entered the home and discovered baby Lucas alone. He was bloodied and he was holding the telephone. The initial belief was that this two-year-old had miraculously called 911 on his own. 
Upstairs in the master bedroom, Lucas's parents were dead. The man was shot to death, and the woman was beaten and grotesquely posed. The community was shocked. The deaths, at first glance, appeared to be the result of a murder-suicide, a theory bolstered by the revelation that Stephen, the husband, was ensnared in an affair. But this theory completely fell apart after Stephen's body was moved and there was no suicide weapon to be found. Our first-degree Lisa, who was handed two-year-old Lucas once the scene was discovered, later informed investigators that there was no way Lucas was advanced enough or possessed the dexterity to have called 911 all by himself. It's here where part two of this story begins, with a shocking realization that whoever killed these young parents had left the scene and returned the following morning in an attempt to clean up and then called 911 before placing the phone in baby Lucas's hands and slipping out the downstairs sliding glass door. We still have our two first degrees, Lisa and her daughter, Megan, with us, and they've been on the periphery of this case from beginning to end. Once the murder-suicide theory went out the window, the investigation really picked up speed. Investigators who had assessed the scene noted that there were no signs of forced entry and no signs of anything expensive missing, which likely ruled out burglary. And they approached this case with a multi-pronged approach. Detectives needed to question everyone in the area within close proximity to the scene to see if anyone saw anything or saw anyone. And simultaneously, the detectives needed to learn everything that they could about this couple in an attempt to assess anyone in their lives who may have had a motive to hurt Michelle and Stephen Andrews. And as we learned in last week's episode, detectives already had an obvious place to start their investigation in the form of Stephen Andrews' mistress. Investigators had first learned of Stephen's affair from Michelle's friend, Sarah, who lived in the same neighborhood. And getting the details of this affair was much more imperative now that the possibility of a murder-suicide was no longer on the table. So now they all come back to re-question Sarah. So they went to Sarah's house, and so they asked her, and she said, oh, Michelle thought he was having an affair. And they said, with who? And she said, with a girl at work, Kelly. So now they're looking up who this, this Kelly is. Sarah told investigators that Michelle's family knew about Stephen's coworker Kelly. And Michelle was uncomfortable after Kelly had given Stephen what she described as an inappropriate gift at a Christmas party for the company where they both worked. And this gift was a keychain that matched Stephen's car. And this was apparently a pretty expensive purchase. At the same time the police began looking into Kelly, they continued to interview family members of the slain couple. And they learned of a serious admission that Michelle had made just two days prior on Christmas. As it turns out, despite the picturesque holiday decor on display inside the home, the holidays weren't exactly merry ones for the Andrews. And here's why. There had been an ordeal that began three years prior when Michelle and Stephen were still living in Minnesota. Michelle had actually gotten pregnant and had chosen to have an abortion. And the father was not her husband, Stephen. At the time, Michelle confessed to Stephen and to her parents that she'd had an affair with a co-worker and she had gotten pregnant. She claimed the whole thing was a mistake and that she regretted it. And it's this version of Michelle's story that they all believe to be true. But the thing is, on Christmas, two days before the discovery of this horrific crime scene, 
Michelle had revised her story. She confided in her family and Stephen. For whatever reason, she finally decided to tell the truth about what had happened to her. The real story was that she had been raped by a coworker. It was not an affair. It was an assault that led to pregnancy. But she had been too afraid, she had been too embarrassed, she had been too ashamed to explain it before. So this reveal had been a shock to everyone. And the detectives had a thread to follow now. Was it a coincidence that this huge, very emotional revelation was made two days before this couple ended up dead? At this point, the police didn't know, but it was worth keeping their eye on. So the police now had two leads to launch their investigation off of. The affair and Michelle's painful admission about being raped three years prior. Meanwhile, our first-degree Lisa and the members of her family were being questioned by police. And as it turns out, Lisa's son Ben had seen something, or rather, someone, on the night of the murders. And the detectives wanted to know everything. You know, who was Ben with? Who, was, who were the neighbors who saw him this morning? And... They said, what time did you leave last night? Of course, he looks at me. I'm like, 11. They said, what time did you get back? He's like, oh, 11.30. And they said, did you see anything? Was there anything strange in the neighborhood? And he said, no. And then he goes, oh, yeah, there was a really weird guy in the neighborhood. And they said, and I kind of looked at him, and they said, what? They said, well, what did he look like? He had short hair, a little goatee, he said, weird eyes. He was wearing a camouflage jacket and he was carrying a backpack. And they're like, you know, are you sure? And he said, yeah. And he said it was a camo hoodie. And they said, how do you know? And he said, because when we saw each other and, you know, like I looked at him, he flipped his hood up and kept walking. Normally, the presence of a stranger walking in the neighborhood would have raised more of a red flag to anyone who encountered them. But because it was Christmas, neighbors are expected to be hosting friends and family for holiday festivities. So Ben crossed paths with this guy in the camo hoodie, wearing a backpack. And the question is, was he connected to the case? Or would pursuing him distract from the investigation and ultimately lead nowhere? And at this point, police just weren't sure. And it turns out that Lisa's daughter, Meg, had seen something too. Only it was the night before the murders. Meg was walking with her friend Chase, and the pair had briefly encountered Stephen. So I was walking home that night, because it was the day after Christmas. So some of the neighbors, we had been out with, like, our new Christmas stuff. One of my neighbors, their son and I were walking back to my house, and Stephen was leaving, and we had passed him. And he just said hi to us. We said hi. So where was Stephen going just hours before he and his wife were thought to be killed? And was it connected to the murders in some way, or was this yet another rabbit hole? The police continued to question residents of the gateway-gated community where the murders unfolded. And they then spoke to a man named Scott, who lived across the street from Lisa's family. He described seeing a man in the neighborhood on the morning the bodies were discovered. And Scott's description matched that of the man who Ben had seen the night before the murders occurred, almost to a T. And so... One of our neighbors said, hey, I saw that guy this morning. But it's Christmas, and although we all know each other, some people have relatives. So this had to be their guy, right? This is big. Because we know the killer was there 
the night the murders happened and then came back the following morning to call 911. What are the odds that the same suspicious man had been seen in the gated community during these two key windows of time? The question was, who was this guy? They needed a name. Meanwhile, hours after the discovery of Stephen and Michelle's bodies, Stephen's mistress, Kelly, heard the news. She was sitting with her mom opening Christmas gifts when a phone call alerted her to the news. And she became hysterical. And she asked a friend to bring her down to the Lee County Sheriff's Department to talk to the investigators. She arrived around 5 p.m. The police learned that Kelly lived about 20 minutes away from Stephen and Michelle in a place called Bonita Springs, Florida. But here's the thing. She didn't live there alone. She lived there with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's mother and the couple's five-year-old daughter. Her boyfriend was named Fred Cooper. He was 30 years old. And Kelly told detectives that Cooper had no idea that she was having an affair with Stephen. And also, on top of that, he wasn't really the jealous type. Kelly also said that Michelle hadn't known about it for a long time, but had discovered the truth about a week or so before Christmas. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Kelly explained to detectives that Stephen had confided in her about how he and his wife Michelle were in a very contentious place since Michelle became suspicious of their affair. Kelly said that Michelle actually called her up to question her about this Christmas gift keychain that Kelly had bought Stephen. So at this point, Kelly wasn't aware of the circumstances of Michelle and Stephen's deaths. So to her, there was still a very real possibility that this could all be the result of a murder-suicide. And she said to the police during her interview that, this is a quote, just from things that Steve has said to me, how Michelle can be in things and how she's acted the last couple weeks, I wouldn't be surprised if she stepped over the deep end. Kelly also confessed that she'd been planning to end her relationship with Cooper. In fact, she had ended it and kind of given him a deadline because she had plans to be with Stephen and Stephen had plans to be with her as well. So police had a lot of information to sift through. Now two potential suspects on their radar, 
It was certainly possible to them that Kelly could be responsible for killing her lover and his wife. But now police also needed to speak with Kelly's boyfriend, Fred Cooper, because he could have equal motive for wanting to eliminate Stephen from their lives, especially if he knew of Kelly's plans to end their relationship. Detectives asked Kelly to call Cooper, to ask him to come down to the sheriff's office to question him. And here's what happened when he arrived. Lo and behold, Fred Cooper, her boyfriend, he's exactly what Ben and God across had described. And he's, there he is sitting there. So police are looking at Cooper, and lo and behold, he looks like the man that Lisa's son Ben and their neighbor Scott had described. And we know that this guy, he's certainly got motive, but is this really their guy, or is his similarity to the eyewitness description just a coincidence? And listen, we know that coincidences are possible, especially if you look back to the Adam Brasile case that we covered a few weeks back. And the police look into Cooper, and they learn that he had a history of trouble with the law. What started as a teenage, typical mischief turned into a more serious crime, which landed Cooper in prison. And he had been arrested several times in the 90s for burglary. Kelly and Cooper began dating when he had gotten out of prison and while he was on a work release program in 1999. He had a tattoo that read Coop on his shoulder, which was his prison nickname. And Cooper made a living as a motorcycle mechanic and he drove a motorcycle, a yellow Kawasaki. Once Cooper is sitting in front of investigators, he denies being involved in any way. When pressed, he said, quote, I'm not worried. I wasn't there. I did not do this. And they talked to Cooper about several things, starting with his six-year-long relationship with Kelly. And he admitted that he and Kelly were in the process of separating due to some arguments that they just couldn't get past. When asked about how he was taking this breakup, he said, quote, I mean, you can't take it well, but there's nothing I can do about it. They asked Cooper about Stephen Andrews and said he didn't know him personally. He was just somebody he had seen at little parties here or there through Kelly's work. Cooper denied knowing that Kelly was seeing someone new. And when the police told him that Kelly and Stephen were having a relationship, he appeared stunned. He said, I had no idea that she was seeing Stephen until just now. I had no idea that was the case. When asked, he said that he had not been to Gateway recently. He said he didn't know where in Gateway Stephen and Michelle Andrews lived. When asked if he owned a gun, Cooper said he had owned an automatic handgun, but that he actually tossed it about three weeks prior. And the reason he tossed it, I mean, because that seems super suspicious, but he said that he was taking the breakup really, really hard and that he was actually having suicidal ideations. And the reason he threw the gun out is because he didn't trust himself with it. And at one point in this interview, detectives suggested that they were also looking at Kelly as a possible suspect. Cooper was asked if he thought that Kelly could have done it. And he replied, quote, the last six years that we've been together, I would not think that she's capable of that. And while Cooper's words and saying that were confident, his overall disposition conveyed nervousness. And Cooper said no to taking a polygraph test, but he did agree to provide DNA to the police. And this really gave them pause because would a guilty man agree to provide DNA sample that could nail him for murder? And just as the police had a touch of doubt, they noticed scratches on Cooper's forearms that resembled defensive injuries. His right hand also appeared to be very swollen, especially around his middle knuckle. So now for very obvious reasons, Cooper is on police radar as the main suspect, 
But to be sure, they needed a lot more evidence linking him to the murders. At this point, Fred Cooper and Kelly Bellew were the lead suspects in the murder of Stephen and Michelle Andrews. But there were questions. Was it Kelly, Cooper, or both of them who had committed these crimes? In two days after the bodies were discovered, the results from Michelle and Stephen's autopsies were finally in. And again, these results gave everyone pause and just created even more questions. The autopsy revealed that Stephen had died of a single gunshot wound to the head. He had likely been sleeping when he was killed. They found the bullet casing under his pillow. But here's the thing. Michelle's death had been the result of a brutal, likely very terrifying beating where she'd fought for her life and she was then strangled. Her cause of death was that of blunt force trauma and asphyxiation. Based on this cause of death and the manner of death, a reasonable theory would deduce that Michelle was the primary target of this deadly rage. Investigators had to ask themselves, why would Fred Cooper, if he was the killer, brutalize Michelle so terribly and spare Stephen the same fate? When Stephen, if their theory of Fred Cooper being the killer, is the one sleeping with Kelly. In this scenario, Michelle would be the bystander, not the target. So looking squarely at how Stephen and Michelle were killed, it would make more sense for Kelly to be the perpetrator based on these findings. Right. And meanwhile, law enforcement was still working to gather evidence to conclusively link either Cooper or Kelly to these murders. And there was a plethora of evidence collected at the scene, as well as from Stephen and Michelle's bodies during an autopsy, but it would take time for everything to be processed. Michelle and Stephen's neighbors in the gated community were nervously waiting for news of an arrest. And it was a chilling prospect that someone capable of killing the young couple could be walking among them still. Lisa and her whole family were reeling from the events that had unfolded just three doors down. I know this sounds so dumb because you hear this and you just, but, you know, like Ben came to me and said, I should have said something. I should have said something. And I said, what would you have said? Mom, there was a weird guy in the neighborhood. I would have gone and looked out the front door. I wouldn't have seen anybody. And as they were processing this whole ordeal, the press coverage of the case escalated. And one of the newspapers did something that was very questionable. They explicitly named Lisa's teenage son, Ben, who is 15 years old, as the witness who saw the person they believed to be responsible for the double slaying. They published his full name in the paper and their address, too. Lisa was not only angry, but terrified. We went ballistic. And they said, well, it's public knowledge. Like, you just printed his all his personal information for a guy they haven't arrested yet. So Lisa was pissed. Rightfully so. And she's scared. She felt that the media put her family in a vulnerable position. The killer, who hasn't been arrested, knows where the primary eyewitness lives. A week later, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I can see the reflection of police lights on the ceiling. And I look out, and there's all these police cars out on the main street, Side note, there was a large field bordering this housing development. And I can see flashlights going across the field. And that's the only time that I went, oh my gosh, they think he's he's coming back. And I, when I got the kids, I was like, we're going to Grandma and Papa's, just get up, we got to go. My dad was out of town 
and my mom woke us up. It was the day before we went back to school for after winter break. And she woke us up at like three in the morning and was like, we're leaving. She thought something else had happened. It was just like, I have to get the kids out of here. They think he's coming. I'm not going to be a sitting duck. You know, we've got to go. But the lead detective said, we're watching him. You don't need to worry. We're watching him. And I said, okay. You know, and he like, like that put my mind at ease. And some of the investigators were in the road. Lisa pulled over to speak with them to see what the heck was going on. The police were like, oh, no, we're just seeing if anybody's commonly out at this time on the street. So it turns out that the police were canvassing the same area at the same time. They believe the perpetrator would have been encroaching upon the Andrews home before the murders occurred. The police's thought at the time was if they waited in the neighborhood at that unusual time, they may find someone who routinely comes and goes at this time, someone with an unusual work schedule, perhaps. And maybe that person may have seen something, seen someone, and, you know, wouldn't have known to come forward about it. So the police were trying to collect more evidence, more eyewitnesses. And meanwhile, police processed Stephen and Michelle's computers and spent time going through their emails. And what they uncovered painted a picture of two relationships that were on the brink of imploding. The pair had met at work in 2005. Kelly was a secretary. And they started as mere co-workers that turned into friends, and they began confiding in each other about feeling unfulfilled in their own separate marriages. And while Kelly and Cooper weren't married, Kelly used his last name within the email address that she used to exchange admissions of love with Stephen. So Stephen and Kelly were fantasizing about starting a new life together. And in the days before Christmas, Stephen wrote an email to Kelly that said, quote, when I am an old man, I want to know that I was true to myself and shared life with someone who wants to be with me as much as I want to be with them. So what police are uncovering was more evidence of the affair that was taking place between Kelly and Stephen. But what they needed was evidence of who murdered the couple. New Year's came and went. They still didn't have a perpetrator in custody. And then on New Year's Eve, we all got together. And that was so weird because we all got together. We weren't celebrating. We weren't. We just kind of all got together and, and very quiet. And then when we were getting ready to walk home, the fog was so thick. You literally could not see in front of you. And I've never, it's never been like that before and has never been like that since. But we were just like this is really kind of creepy. I mean, it was trying to walk by their house. We couldn't even see their house. A funeral was planned for January 7th. Meg babysat Michelle and Stephen's son, Lucas, along with some of the other children, as the service took place. The tone was understandably somber. Yeah, I actually was babysitting their son and a couple other little kids in the back with a couple of my other neighbors at their funeral. I remember Lucas yelled during it, their son, and it lightened up the mood. It was mostly people from our neighborhood at that funeral. They did a separate one in their hometown. You know, when you walked in, it was all the photos of them separate and then one of them together. And it was kind of sad, like, being with him at that time. I just knew he was never going to see his parents again. And I also remember thinking, I just couldn't imagine, like, me going through school when everybody knew that something terrible had happened to my parents. Lisa also attended the funeral, and it rattled her as well. So we went to the funeral at the Catholic Church, and at the end, both dads were carrying out the 
the boxes of their ashes. And that that affected me more than a, a lot of the other things. Those are their kids, and they're taking them home in boxes to bury them back up in Minnesota. I think about that. You know, I'll think about how that whole scenario ended with the two dads carrying their kids away in little wooden boxes from the church. So it had been a little over two weeks when Lee County detectives received word that evidence collected from the scene and evidence during the autopsy had finally been processed. The community had been in the dark about any physical evidence the investigators may have been looking at or may have been testing. It turned out that Michelle had valiantly fought for her life. And while she lost her life, her efforts had not been in vain because DNA of her attacker was found under her fingernails. So the question on everyone's mind was an obvious one. Would the DNA be a match to Fred Cooper's? And the answer was yes. Fred Cooper was arrested in the central Florida city of Castleberry. He was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of armed burglary. And shockingly, even with such conclusive evidence, he pleaded not guilty. And two months later, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty in the case. Fred Cooper's arrest prompted questions for all who knew the couple. Steve did not, he did not deserve to lose his life for a mistake. And it just shows you the mind of an evil person because, like, he decided okay, I'm going to go kill him because he, we're having issues. We're, you know, we're not happy, but I'm going to go kill him because he's, he's just having, you know, an affair with my girlfriend. Like you go into his house and you, and, and then like you kill Michelle. Like she was just as much as a victim as he was, as Fred. I mean, he was, she was just as much as of a victim. It was it, so. It's like, why would why did you kill her? That's the one thing I've always wondered. Like, what made him kill her too? Except for that, he probably woke up. But if you're dumb enough to think you can shoot somebody in his bed, and the spouse isn't going to like hear it, Michelle and Stephen's death did more than rattle a community. It was a cold reminder of the old saying: "You never know what's going on behind closed doors." You have no idea what's really going on. Because if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, my gosh, they were the perfect couple together. They were always together, outside, together, walking, you know, walking Lucas, walking the puppy. You never know. Because if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, my gosh, no, they're so happy. They're just the sweetest couple. And they were when they were together. They were just a super sweet couple. Cooper's arrest elicits so many questions. If he was, in fact, the perpetrator, why merely shoot Stephen but beat Michelle so ferociously if Stephen was the intended target? And then why pose Michelle's body in a suggestive manner? What is the purpose of that? Especially when, if it's because he's a victim of an alleged affair, so is Michelle. It it makes no sense. And also, how could a person evil enough to commit a double murder like this, possess the empathy to return the next morning to call 911 so Michelle and Stephen's son Lucas would be found. We're going to answer all of these questions and more next week on part three. And we know what you're thinking. 
there couldn't possibly be any more surprises, any more plot twists in this case, but you're wrong. Next week, we'll take you through the culmination of the shocking and horrifying evidence that was unearthed during this investigation. The unfathomable, insulting, and devastating defense that was put forth by Fred Cooper's attorney and profile of the trial that was derailed by forbidden love in the courtroom. All right, well, huge thank you to Lisa and Meg for being our first degrees of this week and last week and next week. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the Facebook search bar. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, that close. Happy, Happy uh, Kiss a Ginger Day. Happy Kiss a Ginger the day after Kiss a Ginger Day. Happy friends. Day after you kiss can still a kiss a ginger now. Mm, only Jer. <laughs> I'll kiss a ginger. Bye. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for sound design and for creating original music for The First Degree. Our producing team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode include Naples Daily News, The Cape Coral Breeze, Star Tribune, Fox News, Court Documents, and as always, our First Degree guests, two in this case, are always our largest source. Well, welcome to another episode of Killing Time. You guys look so cute over there. Alexis and Billy are together again, filming in Austin, Texas, looking like they're conjoined. Well, the only reason I'm so close to him right now is because Billy didn't bring his own equipment, even though I asked him to, and we only have one headset and he's wearing it, and I'm struggling to hear your your beauteous voice, Jacqueline. You know what? You asked me to to bring the equipment in a very passive-aggressive manner. (laughs) <laughs> no, I said, should we both bring our equipment? He's like, no. And I was like, okay, great. Just one of us. You bring it. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he's went. like, no, you. I was like, okay, let's just both bring it to compromise. That, that's and he what said, happened. and he said, yeah, let's both bring it. And then he did, still didn't bring his. Yeah. Wow. Like, so like a total, uh, that, that's like a, not not a mind fuck, but what is that? You just totally swore on the trust. Good, good thing I didn't pull a Billy and not bring it because otherwise. <laughs> We wouldn't have a podcast. Have a podcast. It would be the shittiest sounding podcast ever. You'd be like screaming into your computer microphone. That's right. But you sound so great. Thank you, Billy. Good thing I can um, keep it together right. for the team. Right. Somebody has got to keep it together. So you guys are in Austin, Texas right now. You're filming Correct. another episode for Unraveled. Unraveled. Yes. It's really like another series because it's like – it's seven podcasts and right. then two hours like we're doing. But the best thing about Austin, I'll say so far, we just went to In-N-Out and there was no line. <gasps> what? It was crazy. There was How? literally only one car 
there besides us. It was yeah. weird. That is very odd. Why? Mm-hmm. Especially now yep. where there's like you can't go. Oh, I guess Texas is probably open that people are like dining out. Yeah, and yeah. indoor dining is open. Indoor dining? Yes. What does that look like? I forget what it looks like. We don't know because we haven't done it because we're just we walk by places. Well, not walk. We've been we haven't even really left the car, but we drive by places and we're just horrified. Um, we went on one patio. Mm-hmm. Oh we God, that sounds patio nice. Nobody was there. Yeah, we went to Twin Peaks. Oh really? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I'm jealous you guys went on a patio. I forget what that even If anybody doesn't know listening out there, California is completely shut down. Like you literally can't do anything. So I, I really miss the days that you could. No gyms are open here. It's really strange. And then another, another fluke occurred. It snowed here yesterday, several inches. Really? Like yeah. winter wonderland. Mm. Like I felt like it looked like fake snow. It was so weird. And the guy at the front desk at our hotel was like, this happens like once a year and it doesn't stick. And meanwhile, it's like three inches. It was yeah. a lot of snow. It was wild. And, you know, twice at at Twin Peaks and one other time when people asked us where we're from, we said Los Angeles. And both people said the same. Are you moving here? Oh, you're moving here. <laughs> oh, because, yeah. Because there's so many people from Los Angeles are moving to Austin. But we're just like, no, we're not moving here. Though I and wish I was. Honestly, it looks it's fun here. Like shit has it seem it's sort of like real life here. I mean, everyone's everyone's wearing masks, I'll say. Like it's not as as uh I mean, it's like LA and on the street. Everyone's wearing masks, but right. well, shit's some, open. You know, yeah. somehow it, our numbers are still 10 times worse than worst. anywhere else. Yeah. So we're not doing spread, it right in California. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I will say though that being in Austin Having been to South by Southwest like for like ten years, Ugh, and and having it be so crushed together, and then being in Austin, and it's it's a ghost town. I think we drove around yesterday in downtown Austin, and maybe we saw four people max, and it was it, it like was on really Sixth eerie. Street? It felt like if, on Sixth Street, yeah, it felt zombie like. Uh, that's what bums me out so much because I'm sure some most of those, not most of those, but a lot wonder, of those places will close. Yeah. You just wonder how these places are surviving. Yeah. I mean, in LA, places are closing left and right, but like in a in a such a bar heavy and like a foot traffic heavy yeah. place. I mean, it was a Sunday night, wasn't it? It was. It was Sunday. Yeah, yeah no was one Sunday. was out. Yeah. No one was. And I remember, I remember the first time I was in Austin and seeing all those bars on Sixth Street. So everybody there, I was like, how do these bars survive? You know, the other like fifty weeks of the well, year that when it's not South by. Yeah, there is. You don't understand how many bars are on Sixth Street, people, if you haven't been there. Oh my god! But they do, and they survive. But now I, I do. I worry about them, and I just want to get this freaking thing over with. Well, it was crazy. So I've been to South by a million times too. It is. It used to be my favorite week of the year because they're the energy in that city during that week, and now it's like a couple weeks long because they have the different themed tech whatever. So fucking fun. There is nothing like it in the world, like South by Southwest. And are you guys? Can you not hear? Just Billy, because he's putting his head too far for me, and I keep taking it closer so I can hear. And for some reason, he moved the opposite way, which was confusing. Sorry. No, it is what I was going to say is like you're there for South by, and then even the week after, it seems like a ghost town. So I can't even imagine what it mm-hmm. seems like now. So it's that's such a such a bummer, man. But yeah. at least, but it it's, a, it's still a great city, and everybody is moving there. So once the shit is over with, there'll be a lot new California residents there. Yes. Yeah, you will get uh, In-N-Out Burger with no lines, but you can't buy liquor on Sundays. Trust me, we tried. (laughs) We tried. 
So they don't serve liquor at all. No, no. They, they no, they serve liquor in bars, but uh, when we, we needed more liquor at a liquor store, the liquor stores are closed on Sunday. That is a travesty. That's yes. where that's where California does. We are, you know, yeah. superior. When you can when you can, when you can you buy can, bourbon at CVS at CVS until two a.m. at night, any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Screw it. You know, when you need it, you need it. Um, I was well, going to – We need a sedation for all those broken dreams. I know. know. That's – especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say I read an article recently about – I guess they just put it in and out in Denver, Colorado. Ooh. The line there was 15 hours long. Wow. 15 hours. Would you wait in a 15-hour long line to get your first In-N-Out burger? No, but I do have to say that when Billy and I ate this In-N-Out today, there was silence because it was like so pleasurable mm-hmm. where I was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh. Like when you're craving – because I was like, I don't think I've had In-N-Out throughout the duration of the pandemic. Oh my God. Um, so it's been like probably close mm, – Eight, eight, ten months, something like that. And I'd been craving it for the last three days and I couldn't get finagle to get it, you know, because we're shooting and stuff. Um, oh, it was so I would wait at least an hour. Fifteen hours no. But one hour, yes. But for your first in and out ever mm. to have that first. You no, know because you is, don't though. know if it's yeah. good or if you don't know if it's worth it yet. You don't know if it's worth it. I would say if I really wanted in and out, I would wait maybe an hour. But that's that's kind one of hour it. tops. And Only Jeff, I, you know, our entire friendship, we've never waited in line for anything. No, I don't. I'm not a line waiter. I would. This is the only way I would do it is if I was drunk, if I had a road beer, and then if I also had some other snack in the car, mm, like a cheese plate, a mobile cheese plate of sorts, <laughs> like a, a charcuterie board. Situation. Yes, something mm. to keep something to keep you distracted from the weight. I don't know. Like 10 deep fried string cheeses. Yes, that's right. A nice marinara dip. That's right. Um can you say anything about what you're filming or give a clue or anything at all to our listeners? You know what? I can just say that it is unlike a story you've ever heard before. I don't I, even I know what the story say is. That and, and I've I've been in true crime for over 20 years, and I, I can honestly say it's unlike a story you've ever heard before. Is it? Is, it's unless not, unless, unless you listen degree. to the first degree. <laughs> unless you listen to the first degree. Oh, it's a first degree story. That's a good clue. Yeah, Jack, you get a, you're a producer on it, remember? Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> wait. She's oh, like, oh, okay. right. I've got so many irons in the fire, it's hard to remember <laughs> which one. I, I still – I think I know which one it is. This will be fun. I want everybody on our Facebook group to guess. You have a one yes. in like 130 get, chance. And I'll give one hint. Mm. Tiny little glasses. <laughs> That's good. Yes. And let's stop it right there. Yeah. yeah. And our very own Jacqueline is our Chris Jenner – and um, I, do I uh-huh. so when she the show hands and everything and she forgets it sometimes yes, when the does. show airs, do I get does my name pop up? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I don't even have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, this is I mean, that's what producers do. They don't do anything. I mean, if you're the type of producer that I am now, you know, you're so powerful mm-hmm. that you just you're like this equivalent of like a silent investor, an angel investor. Yeah. That's right. Mm, I like this. We should do some. <laughs> I think Just stacking those credits for nothing in a I good way. Think pick some more first degree cases for this show. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But that's not the only thing that's going on in January. 
Yes, Alexis. Mm, okay, so this is exciting, everyone. Jack, you announce. So Alexis and I are both going to be a part of a true crime show that is filming next week in New York City. I am told we can't say what name it is, what the name of the show is. We probably can. It's just, you know what's weird about it, Jack? And sorry if any of the EPs on the show listen to this <laughs> podcast to like lurk on us, which they may. Probably. There hasn't been any, they haven't made an official like announcement, announcement. about it. Yeah, so maybe we should. If it comes out like pretty soon yeah. too. Okay, yeah. this show is going to air the fir- second week of February. Um, but my worry is if they change the name last minute or something mm. because like they haven't announced it. Can we say so, what channel it'll be on to make sure? Yeah, that- it'll be on um, Discovery Plus. Yep. So for Which, it's, it's for why, Discovery ID. By the way, okay, I was not sold on Discovery. I know that your show is going to be airing on Discovery Plus, and I heard heard a little bit about it, and I'm like, eh. But then I really saw all the shows that were going to be on it, and mm-hmm. I I think it's probably the best app ever. Ninety day, ninety day fiance universe is on there. All of like Guy Fieri shits on there. All of Investigative Discovery is on HGTV. there, right? HGTV. It's you actually don't really need anything else other than Discovery Plus. Well, literally all we watch, Jack, besides true true crime, is Ninety Day Fiance. Literally, that's all I watch. Well, Billy and I got free logins. It's only six ninety nine a month. Everyone, you can afford it. But anyways, <laughs> like we got free logins because we're gonna have to like record ads for the Discovery podcast or whatever. And I was like, oh my god, I can watch all the Ninety Day Fiance shit as much as I want for free. Because it's, some of it's on Hulu, but not it's not all in one place, and it's hard to sift through. Yes, not it's not all on Hulu. That's just, you know, I say that 90 Day Fiance is just this endless pit of amazingness. And it really, you could watch it for months and months and months on end, which I have been doing. And I'm just so glad it's all in one place. And that is my non-paid ad for Discovery Plus app. There you go. Same, same. But I do have to say, like, I ha- I feel so lucky. And, like, you know, when we talked about our New Year's episode, I didn't want to talk about anything lucky that's happening. But I, what I feel super grateful for is that I get to do this project with Billy and then Jack, that you and I get to do something um, together and that like our true crime dreams are all kind of coming true. makes me really happy. And I know. of course, it's like we all work our asses off and Jack, like you work your ass off and you, the reason why this podcast even made a ripple in the world is because of you. Aww. And I'm just so glad that we get to sort of up the ante and do more you know, stuff that we love. And I'm just really proud of all of us. Yes. I mean, the next, now we just need the something with the three of us or me and Billy together and no Alexis. Yes. <laughs> it's only fair. It's only fair. So, what would we work I mean, on, Billy? as crushing as that would be, I mean, fair is fair. All right. Well, we'll I'll DM you about a fashion line. <laughs> uh, goth, goth country fashion line? Mm-hmm. Goth country fashion line. Let's I'm, go do it. I'm totally into that. Um, no, I'm really excited. And I think it is a start of hopefully some other fun projects that we can all work on together. Me too. And Jack, it's, it'll be good for us to have a, an opportunity to safely go to another city together because like, just so everybody knows, it's we would never travel if not for work. Um, no. And they test, we quarantine before, we test before, we test, we quarantine, we get there, we test after. It's a complete They're testing evening. every day at the show. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it, the, you know, it's as safe as can be. We're not putting anyone at risk. So I just wanted to make that super clear. And I know Jack in particular, who's such like a wanderlusty travel 
person. I know you've been struggling because like you've been doing the right thing and staying home. And this is at least an opportunity to do something. Yeah, go um, to go to New York and sit in a hotel room. Yeah. Uh, well, and then go straight to work, that straight home. can't even fly together because we can't get, like, they're worried that we could give each other something. Yeah, we so can't. Everybody we, has to be separate and fly separately. My mom was saying it's like the president and the vice president have to fly on separate jets. Yeah, it's like the designated survivor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I'm that important. Thank you. <laughs> I am. Yeah. It is pretty crazy because obviously I started this podcast as a fan. I mean, I have no true crime expertise at all. So it's kind of when I was talking to the producer about the show, he was kind of explaining everything that was going on. And I'm like, S- I was like, so is my role just being like a true crime podcaster? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, yeah, you have your expertise through the podcast and having these conversations with people. I was like, wow, I've really made it. <laughs> You're an expert now. There you go. Well, it's so funny, Jack, because they sent me all the cases uh, to start researching and I was just sending the notes and anyone, anytime there was one with a psychopath, I was like, this would be great for Jack to comment on. Like Jack has read every book on this. Like, and I, I was like telling them what, how, how much you'll know about like some of these cases and like how you'll have personal anecdotes. And it got me really excited. Um, I think we're gonna have a really good time. I think we are too. It's just exciting to have anything going on. So I'm so stoked. (laughs) I can't wait. And I do have to say, like you were saying, I, I'm an Enneagram seven. I love vacationing and traveling and always doing something. And I have been terrified to get on a plane. I obviously haven't gotten on a plane since March. So I am nervous to travel, but I think that we're doing it in the safest way possible. And they are keeping us very safe while we're there. Honestly, Billy and I took Delta here. Um, kudos to Delta. Like, I've never seen a more well-oiled machine in that way. Like, they mm-hmm. they have a little tray, and you take, like, all these disinfecting wipes, like these individually wrapped ones, to wipe your area down, and everyone's wearing masks. They are not – the plane was probably at 15% max. Oh, especially now in January, nobody's traveling. Everyone's super spaced out. It was just like a very uh, – like they they were still giving snacks and stuff, but they were in bags. Like you don't touch anything. And Yeah. I don't know. I felt really safe on the flight. What do you think? No, it, it was a very pleasant experience also because – I mean it was actually more – I hate to say that, but it was more pleasant than than the normal flying because the normal flying you feel like you're – A sardine. Yeah. yeah. And, and this was this was very, very pleasant and, uh, you know – we had a we had a great great flight attendant Tim well. if you're listening Tim, Tim from Delta Tim, Tim from Delta <laughs> he he would hold the trash bag open down the aisle and he's like trash and then I kept pretending to dive into the trash bag oh my god and he was like thought it was the funniest thing ever <laughs> he's like I get it like you're trash I'm like uh huh <laughs> exactly amused by that oh Tim from Delta we love you <laughs> all right well. Okay, that was not an ad for Delta, and that was not an ad for Discovery Plus. It's just how we feel, guys. No, but you guys but can I would buy love to. You want to. <laughs> I, I know. Please, Delta and Discovery Plus. I will talk about 90 Day Fiance till the day I die. Yes. And I think we killed enough time. Time of death, 17 minutes. Beep, beep, beep. beep.